19. We're going to start reading verse number 21 down through the end of the chapter. This is the one event that takes place here. It says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia. So, excuse me, so he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Aristus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. In the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, who he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that uh, not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. When they had heard these things, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion, having caught uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. When Paul would have entered into, in, in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused. And, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews, putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with his hand and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, You men of Ephesus, what man is, what man is that knoweth not how that the city of of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and, and do nothing rashly. For you have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open and, they are and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give account of this concourse. When he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message today. Lord, one, help me to stay true to your word. 
Lord, control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that you'd use your word to draw us closer to you. May we see the truth that is here. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would work. If there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, may that conviction hit. May they truly see what Christ did for them and that even this morning they would repent and place their faith in Christ. Again, Lord, I pray that you be glorified. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, it has been several weeks since we've been in the book of Acts between the times that I was, that I was traveling out. And so we're just getting back into it right now. And Paul, of course, is on his, uh, he is into his third missionary journeys. He came into Ephesus. And, and, and we know, remember this, when Paul writes back to the church at Ephesians, that letter, he deals much with spiritual warfare. He will exhort how they are not to give place to the devil. He will exhort on the importance of the armor of God. How we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The devil has been fighting, of course, in all of Paul's journeys. But in, in Ephesus, it has been no difference. Uh, he has faced many battles since he is there. And really, the last several messages prior to this one, we focused on where it said in verse 20, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. How God's word prevailed over all the attacks, all that was taking place... Yet God's word prevailed. However, the devil certainly wasn't done yet. He attempts in our text here, I believe, to outright murder the Apostle Paul to take him out. The devil is always fighting us. He always fight a church that is active. He will always fight a church that is making a difference. He will always fight against Christians that are making a difference. That has always been the case. The church at Ephesus was an incredibly strong church. So here is Paul, again, on his third missionary journey. He has been there, if you remember, it's going on three years. The longest stint by far he has been in any one location on his missionary journeys. And the church truly has been going with Paul preaching literally every day. We got into the amount of hours each day that Paul was teaching and preaching the Word of God. And this church was taking off and being very, getting very well grounded. Remember what this city is. The city of Ephesus. It ranked, with, uh, it ranked with Corinth as one of the most, two, the, the most two important cities on the road from the east from Rome was, was Ephesus and Corinth. It was an incredible city. It was a commercial center. It had four major roads that came into it. It was a port city. Even though it was three miles in, the river ran in and, they could, and, and the ships were able to come right up into the port right there at Ephesus. It was known for this temple the temple of Diana, the worship of Diana. It was a really an ugly, nasty-looking, of course, false god made with the image of hands. The entire religion itself of the worship of Diana was all based around sensuality and sex. The town itself was known for sorcery and witchcraft. The occult was strong in Ephesus. And again... It was in, while Paul was here that he was confronted with a lot of tremendous power of the devil. That was amassed against the preaching of the gospel. But God's word prevailed. Again, we've been looking at that for the last several sermons that we've been in this book. Remember what took place in the last message. I mean, uh, this is a major world city for this time frame. One of the three major cities of the world of that day. And, and a major revival breaks out. So the people are bringing their books of the occult and the wickedness and the images. And they have this enormous bonfire that takes place. 
it was, it was worth so much that they burned 50,000 pieces of silver as what it was all worth. That was an that was enormous sum of money. So this revival breaks out. We talked about that last time. You can really can't see how to make a difference in a city. So the gospel was having a major effect on one of the major cities in the world. I mean, even this week, you can think what's taking place in Auburn University, if you're following that story a little bit. And that's just one university. But this is a major world city where a significant revival is taking place. As I mentioned before when I was going through this, if there was a CNN and a Fox News of the day, this would be a lead story what was taking place in the city of Ephesus. And this is what Christ in his word does to the idols, to wickedness. That when people come to know Christ, they can actually see what they were living for was actually worthless. Even the Apostle Paul, who was such a religious man, devout in his Judaism and full of religion, but once he came to realize who Christ was, that this wasn't a game, that this wasn't false, he was the one trying to stomp it out when he realized the truth of it. What he, what he considered before to be great treasure to him, now he considered nothing but trash. Because he saw the worth and the value of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what's taking place in Ephesus. Think of Paul, how long he's there. He's teaching every single day. He's in God's Word. Conversions are taking place. And these people, the men, the women, they're realizing what life is all about. It's like, man, look what we've given our life for, to this vanity. I mean, we actually believe that gods were made with hands. How foolish. I mean, you can see what Paul was teaching. He's going through who the Creator is. All that he's done. The truth of world history up to that point, how God has been working. Their lives are completely changed. They realize that God is the pearl of great price. That He is what life is all about. That it's not about their sensuality. That it's not about their pleasure. That it's actually about God. Even though God's word is prevailing, of course, the spiritual battle is still very real, and the devil stays at work. Again, I believe his intention here with the riot that takes place in Ephesus was to murder the Apostle Paul. But it's good to know that God is in control. So in our text today is a narrative of this riot that breaks out. It's not a riot like we're used to. I mean, there's no cars to overturn. There's no spray paint cans to, to, to write on stuff. So there's just a whole lot of shouting that's going to take place before it would turn violent. But we see the devil attacking. And we're going to see, as we've already read, it doesn't work. But listen, the devil still did not stop his attacks on the church at Ephesus. And listen to me. When we conclude today, he found a way that would work. He found a way that would work. So let's look at the riot to start off with. Verse 21 and 22 says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through, uh, uh, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must uh, also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Paul was a planner, always strategically planning 
what was to take place. And that's what we see taking place first in these, in these first two verses. Paul wanted to go back through what we've already looked at on his second missionary journey, heading back into Corinth, Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi. And what he was going to do was, the church at Jerusalem was under tremendous persecution and experiencing great poverty. And so he's going to go back through where he went through on his second missionary journey and actually collect an offering for the church back at Jerusalem, which is interesting because, because I mean, rightfully so, we'll use those verses many times of, uh, in 2 Corinthians, which talks about this offering, in chapters 8 and 9, in support of world missions. But what's taking place there is you actually have the mission churches sending funds back to a supporting church in Jerusalem that was in great need. And so Paul's planning ahead on this, and we have the first mention of his, of his desire to go to Rome. When he sends out Timotheus, by the way, you're now going to have another book in the New Testament that is written. That's going to be 1 Corinthians. We already have, as we have already covered, 1 Thessalonians was done while he was in Corinth. 2 Thessalonians is done. Also by this time, we also had the epistle of James would have been written. So Paul is going to send an advanced team ahead. That's going to be Timothy, who we know, and Erastus, who we know very little about. In the letter to 1 Corinthians, Paul gave the reason why he would stay back. Why he wasn't traveling with them yet. In 1 Corinthians 16.8, he talked about, I will, I'm, going to stay, I'm going to stay at Ephesus until Pentecost. That's the verse we have where he says, There's a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. And they're getting ready to face one of them. During this planning stage is when Satan begins this next attack to try and destroy He's going to try and destroy. The Bible says there was no small stir about that way. Again, that way is referring to Christianity. It's, it's, this isn't the first time it's been referred to by that, but it's referring to what is taking place in regards to the revival. And many look, we see that in the book of Acts that was referred to as the way. Simply because Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so, this, this riot, it starts to form right here as a result of a man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. And likely, just because of his influence, we don't know it for sure, he would have been the leader of, of what was common in those times called the guild. It was similar to the unions of our day. And so he was able to assemble all the men of similar craft to let them know, listen, we're in danger here. We've got a problem. This revival is taking place, and it's affecting us economically. We're not making nearly as much money as what we were. I mean, these were the men that would make those shrines and those idols. They had made copies of, of this uh, goddess Diana and of the temple itself. That's how they made their fortunes, was off the idolatry and off of the wickedness. The temple itself was actually huge. 420 feet by 250 feet. Huge place. At the time, it was one of the wonders of the world. And there was lots of money to be made off of this. Just like you even see people today abusing Christianity and other religions, using it simply to make profit. A lot of money was made. However, the gospel and the changed lives was fouling up their business because people were accepting the truth of the gospel and wanted nothing to do with the idols. They realized there was nothing to them. Again, there's a principle here on how to change a town. The key isn't protesting. The key is a changed life through the gospel. 
a changed worldview where a, a person understands why they're here. They understand what, who Jesus Christ really was, why that man was here, why God was in the flesh. And they make that decision to convert. Boy, when you see that begin to take off, a town is changed. The gospel is the key. But Demetrius begins to cause this stir, and that's all their wealth is at stake. He's appealing to their greed. And again, you start attacking people financially, and, and there's going to be a battle. And then he tries to appeal to the religious piety. Uh, this, uh, you know, the, our great goddess Diana, that's, it, that's what's at stake here. <laughs> that's just to make it so it's not all about money. Of course, this gets their wrath going, the Bible says, and they start calling out, Great is Diana uh, 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 of Ephesus. The entire city begins to hear this, and the entire city really gets involved. <clears throat> and the, the, the crowd moves into the theater. This theater, we actually still exist today. The remains of it exist today. We're dealing not with a, not with a small little amount of people here taking place. Understand, this isn't 500, this isn't 1,000 people, this isn't 2,000 people, this isn't 5,000 people. It is somewhere between 25 and 30,000 people are now involved in this. They make their way to the theater. They go looking for Paul. They want him. They want the leader of this group of the way. They want the leader of, of what's leading to this change in this this major world city of Ephesus, they want that man, but they can't find him. So they pull out two of his companions. They know that are with him. And Paul, here's what's taking place. I appreciate Paul's courage. He's ready to go right in. I think Paul wants to preach to about 25,000 people myself. But he was a man of courage. I mean, he was. He was a man that we see throughout his entire life that truly believed God was in control. Even when we go back to the second missionary journey and he's being beaten and put in prison in Philippi. And what did he do? He's saying. That's what he did. He wasn't, begging the, 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 he wasn't begging the warden, please let us out, please show mercy. He's simply saying praises to the Lord, knowing God's in control. So here's this right. He's hearing them calling how great is the how great is the goddess of Diana. Paul's there. He's ready to go preach. But really, he had two groups that were preventing him at the same time. Not only the disciples, but even those of the leadership of Ephesus. Listen, no, you cannot go out there. This thing will explode on us. And Paul listens to him and realizes it's best that he doesn't. So he does not go out. The assembly itself is, I love, you can almost sense a little bit of Luke's sarcasm and humor, by the way, as you're going through this. Twice he says, all right, the majority of the people don't even know what's going on right now. Everybody's just shouting. Everybody's just shouting. They really, the majority of the people present really have no clue why they're there, what's going on. They know something's happened, and so they're confused. The Jews then have an idea. They put forward this man named Alexander to talk. Now, he never gets to speak, so we really don't know what perspective he was going to become from. We can only speculate what he was going to say. Because once they found out he was a Jew, they just start shouting him down, and he never actually gets to speak. 
And there's two schools of thought of who he was. Most would say, which is the likely case, that he was simply was an unconverted Jew that was seeking to distance himself from realizing what was taking place and concerned that they would, because understand, they, were, they would associate Christianity with Judaism. Obviously, we understand why. And so he would want to distinguish them from that. Others say, no, this probably was a converted man that was trying to speak, but we, we really just don't know what the Bible doesn't tell us. But nonetheless, it just leads to two hours of them calling out, great is the, is the goddess Diana. But then the town clerk intervenes. This would be a chief citizen of the town, basically the mayor. He would be the chairman of the town assembly, of the town council, the secretary of the town council. He was the guy who would call, he, he's the one who would call the meetings uh, of the town uh, um, to order, to, to meet. He would set the schedule. And he knows, this isn't on the schedule. And he knows there's danger here for himself especially. He has a great motive to keep this right in check and get this thing over with without any violence. Because they had, as, as we've went through the book of Acts, we've discussed certain cities that had greater amounts of privilege from Rome than other cities. Well, Ephesus was one of those cities. This man's responsible for that city. And if all of a sudden they have a major event takes place, they run the danger of losing some of the freedoms that they actually had from Rome. And guess who's going to be held responsible? The town clerk. So it's, it's in his best interest to end this thing. And that's exactly what he does. He calls to attention. He actually proclaims the innocence of uh, the innocence of the Christians. He knows they've done nothing illegal. There's nothing wrong that they've done. He proclaims that to the town, and he says, "Listen, we we serve this great goddess Diana. We got nothing really to worry about." By the way, that temple again is just simply in ruins, and here we are, those of the way, still preaching. So the town clerk gives a speech, and it works. Again, the majority had no clue why they were there anyhow. So they hear the, they, they hear the town clerk speak, and they're like, yeah, let's go home. And, and it is dismissed. So this attack of the devil also failed. The church at Ephesus survives. Keep in mind, it's the church at Ephesus that's already been uh, reaching out through what we call Asia Minor today, or modern-day Turkey in the map, and they've established many churches as a result of what's been taking place in the last three years, including all the churches that you see in the book of Revelation. So it withstood another attack. Once again, God's word has prevailed. They are protected. And by the way, this action, many, many when writing about this uproar, believe something similar took place here to what happened at Philippi, that it's likely because of this event, we know Philippi had a measure of protection because of what took place there with the beating of Paul. That the local church there had some protection now, that it's unlikely they would get much pressure from the town or, 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 or hindrances at all. Many people believe that happened to Ephesus with this event here, that it provided a measure of protection for the local church that was at Ephesus. So the church has withstood this attack. Again, this was a strong church. Paul here as his pastor for the last couple of years, Timothy himself will become pastor of this church. It was a very strong church. 
withstanding attack after attack. However, the devil will take one more route to try and attack them. You know, the devil's been at work for 6,000 years at hindering mankind from serving God. He's a master at deceiving people and blinding. He is. I mean, you, you can see it in our culture today, what people actually believe to be true, and it's absurd. I mean, completely absurd, but they believe it to be true. The devil knows what he's doing. He's been at it for 6,000 years, and, and we've been alive here on an average age right now. I, I don't know what our church is at average here. We're probably an average age of, I, I don't know, 50. Bob throws that curve off there. We would have been like 27, but with Bob here, it throws us off. As the Bible instructs us, we are not to be ignorant of his devices. One of the first things the devil tries to do when we look at his pattern throughout scriptures, he tries to deceive. If he can't do that, he tries to divide. Well, look at how he's doing that. Even not only in local churches right now, but in our country right now. If that doesn't work, he tries to daunt us, if you will. Almost like what we see is taking place here with the destruction he wanted to happen in Acts chapter 19. And if those don't work, his next tool is usually to, div- to divert. This is going to work at the church at Ephesus. He's going to divert them. He's going to get them distracted. He understood it was a strong church. He knew where their strengths were, so he had, to come at, he had to come at this from a different angle, from a different place. Let's look at this church from what happens here in Acts chapter 19. Let's go 40 years into the future. Turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's see where they're at 40 years later. Verse number one. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Here's what he says to the church. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and hast borne and has patience for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. Listen, what he's saying in 2 and 3 are some great things about this church. It's showing the strength of the church. But boy, look at that next verse. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left Thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Again, this was a strong church, but they had a major problem that arose. They have left their first love. Just think how horrible it would be to hear the Lord tell you, I am somewhat against thee. 
You think everything's great. You think, listen, listen, we're strong. We're trying to reach out. We're doing a, a lot of right things. We're not compromising. Like, and, and if you get into the book of Revelation, the majority of those churches, uh, with, with the exception of two more, are under mass compromise with the wickedness of the day, just like we see taking place right now. They stay faithful. Listen, listen, we're not going that direction. They were staying strong, but then to hear, they think, listen, I mean, they got to think, listen, we're, we're, we're one of the last strong churches. But then the Lord Jesus Christ himself says, I am somewhat against thee. So much so that he makes it clear that if you don't repent of this, I will remove thy candlestick. You will not be a church before me again. I believe those at Ephesus were stunned and shocked at that statement. I mean, they were doing so much that was right. They had ministries going on. They were working as Christ told them. They had patience, which meant perseverance. They didn't quit. They didn't tolerate immorality, which is so common in our day. They didn't embrace sin that was in their church as a matter of convenience. Much different than the church, what happened at Corinth. They had discernment, as it describes for us in Revelation chapter 2. Again, this, this was a strong church, and they were staying faithful, staying uh, persevering. But they left off the number one thing, their love for God. Let them, they have left off their first love. The word first there has two meanings and both apply. It means foremost in time and best chief first. Obviously the first speaks to time and the other two priority. That exact same word is translated chief ten times. So they had, uh, they had love for Christ, but it was no longer chief. It was no longer first. The word that the Bible uses here for a left is a very strong word. It means to neglect or to divorce. A church that has lost its preeminent love for Christ. As Christ said here, I'm going to remove the candlestick. You've lost your reason to exist. Does this not remind you what happened to Judaism in the days of Christ? A pseudo-Judaism formed by the time Christ was on the earth. Think of what they did with the Sabbath day. Think of how obsessed they became with the Sabbath day. With rule upon rule upon rule from that one command. All that they developed and all of a sudden it became more about the command than it did about God. In a very similar fashion, that's what's happening to the church at Ephesus. Listen, they were focusing more on their form than they were their faith. Forgetting what it's all about. Don't allow your Christian life to become about your form. The things that you do, the standards that you have, the ministries that you're involved in. Always allow it to be about God. All those things are good and necessary. The Lord commended them for what they were doing right. Those things need to be in place. But don't make it about those things. The 
There's danger when that takes place. So the devil, the attack the devil was successful on at the church at Ephesus was that distraction, that diversion. What he did was, he made their religion God. The devil has them distracted. When this begins to take place, when you concentrate more on your form than your faith, when, you, when, when the chief love is not for God, there's dangers that come in very quickly. One, you'll start to see the world as your enemy instead of a mission field. You see the wickedness that comes around you, and you're trying to stand for what's right, and you're trying to use discernment, but all of a sudden, it just gets to a place even bitterness can come in. You no longer see it as a mission field. You forget that those who are coming up in our culture right now, they're blind. This is all they know. You start to see the world as an enemy instead of a mission field. Number two, when this takes place, your service will become mechanical. That's a horrible place to be. You want to talk why so many people burn out? Because their service is mechanical. It's out of duty. There's not a one of us in here that would want our spouse to treat us in a way out of duty. We'd want it out of passion. We don't want to have that relationship formed as a result of duty, but you want it out of passion. You want it out of love. Your service will become mechanical and hard and dry. You're just going through because of duty. You see the world as your enemy instead of a mission field. Another thing that takes place is a measure of, and I don't mean this in a good sense. There's, there's some great things about contentment. But that's not how I mean this. A complacency and a contentment will set in with where you're at. Because passion for God and passion for the Lord, a genuine love for Him is what pushes us forward. The, the truth is, those who really don't want to go forward with their Christian life, the problem is your love relationship with God because your life isn't about Him. And so you're content, this is enough. When that begins to take place, listen to me, it changes how you read the Bible. It changes how you pray. It changes your attitude even when you're present in church. When this hits, you run the danger of all of a sudden your life becoming about self-advancement instead of advancing of the kingdom of God. You'll become insensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. See, when love is gone, the fervor that is associated with love is replaced by procedure. By the way, those around you notice that. The loss that you work with, they begin to notice that. But when there's a genuine love for God that's still motivating you, Listen, that's the fuel. That's the oil of all of this. I mean, 
If we go back to the Garden of Eden, we were created in the image of God for fellowship with Him, for the relationship with Him. Again, think of it in relation to the Sabbath day, but related to what goes on with us today. Where Christ had to tell them, listen, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Don't make it so much about the religion. You're missing what it's all about. It's about God. It's about that relationship with Him. Look at this key verse. Deuteronomy 20. I remember years ago I came across this, and it was one of those... Every now and then, you know, you have those moments when you're reading something and it just changes. It affects you, I should say. Deuteronomy 28 was one of those for me. I want you to see this. Remember, remember the case that I've been making so far that you can get to a place, what the devil likes to do is divert. He wants your, he wants your love not on God, but on procedure, on form. Not about the Lord, actually. Even though what you're doing is about it. Remember what he even said to the church at Ephesus. What they did was for his name. But Deuteronomy 28 now. I want you to read. I don't have time for If I was to go back, he's dealing with the curses that will come upon you. And what will lead to those curses as this instruction goes to the nation of Israel. But along this line, look at one of the things that lead to some of these curses. Look at verse 47. <clears throat> because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Notice, it, it, the curse wasn't because they weren't serving that it would come. He said, no, you could be serving, but it could still hit. The problem is, you weren't doing it with joyfulness. It wasn't about God. It was just, this is what we got to do. You, you, you think about all that God has done for us. From creation, from His mercy, His grace, His long-suffering, His forbearance, willing to become man to die for us, and you begrudgingly come into church. All right, we have to go to church. What's wrong with you? Would you get eyes off of self and remember what it's all about? I mean, the greatest command we have, Matthew 22, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. It's about Him. If the devil, if the devil recognizes that there's a strength there, listen, I, they have discernment, they know the Word of God, they're staying strong, uh, I, I, they have God's protection and His sovereignty from destruction, I've got to come another route. And a route that happens many times with those who are strong is to affect where their love and where their passion is. It was successful at the church at Ephesus. The truth is, you can hit a home run. You can, hit a, you can get in a baseball game and you can hit a home run. But if you, when you're jogging those bases, if you miss first base, you're out. You might think with your Christian life you've hit a home run, but if, if, if God's love for God is not chief, you missed first base and you're out. I've used this illustration before, but you have a, a couple that's been married for many years, 40, 45 years. Driving down the road in the car, and the wife says to the husband, you know, 
We used to sit right next to each other. Your arm around me. And now look. He turns to her and says, I haven't moved. See, if that's true with your relationship with God, he's not the one that's moved. That's you. I love Christ's correction for it. I'll finish with this. He told him, remember. Now, we went, this is perfect for us because we went through how incredible the events at Ephesus have taken place. Know what he wanted to remember? He said, remember. Remember how all this got started. Remember back when you heard the truth of the gospel, when you were the ones who were the pagans thinking that the gods were made with hands and how pathetic and ridiculous this is. And now you have true knowledge. Now you understand what life is about. You understand how you got here and, and what God did to save you from judgment day. And the passion you had. And how you were more than willing to come, regardless of the worth before the world, and burn anything that was against him. They had that enormous fire at Ephesus. He goes, do you remember the passion of those days? Remember back to that time. Maybe remember back to that time when you first came to know the Lord. And that truth hits you. I mean, I'll think of that often. I still remember when it clicked. As Pastor John Norris was giving me the gospel. I mean, I always heard Christ died on the cross, but it clicked. I got it. I understood. And the tears just started flowing. I'm like, I see what he did. And he even stopped at that point. He said, would you like to put your faith in Christ now? Yes, I would. Remember back. Get your mind in the right place. Get focused back on the relationship itself and not the duties of the relationship. Remember the time with how special the Bible was to you. I, I, I pulled it out, I think, one time in the last eight years that I've been here that I've done that. The very first Bible I was ever given, how excited I was to have my own Bible. To be able to get that out and remember running upstairs wanting to read it. Don't get so caught up in the form that you lose what the faith is all about. And that's about loving God. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now let me ask this question. If you're here right now, you'd say, I'm... Pastor, I'm not even certain that heaven is my home. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. Listen, let me walk you through that. 